All right. <laughs> Southern Soul Podcast is a weekly hangout and live DJ happy hour where the hosts know you by name and might just remind you of a favorite relative. We spotlight interesting people, discuss current events, and pay special attention to lifting up the younger generations and honoring those who came before us. Join us live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Just log on, kick back, and experience the eclectic vibe. Check us out at southernsoulpodcast.com. So I asked Daddy Rich if I could introduce our speaker tonight because I wanted to share something about a woman I've known since I was 17. So on the first day of drop ad at Davidson College, and that's that time-honored tradition where you realize that you've chosen an unrealistic slate of classes, um, the Black upperclassmen had invited all of the Black um, underclassmen, the Black freshmen to the Black Student Coalition House to just help us in the drop ad process. And I remember walking in and I remember seeing that there was one person around whom everybody else was sort of gathered. And that tiny animated person was Janet Stovall. And as I came closer and closer to where the small crowd, and there were only like 60 something black students at Davidson and all of us weren't in there. But as I came closer to the crowd, I realized that this wasn't an ordinary drop ad. Janet was actually talking to us about what classes to drop and which ones to add. And it wasn't um, a conversation about which professors were too hard, but she was actually advising us on which professors we didn't wanna have because they were racist and just because they did not have our best interests in heart. And what I remember was thinking that here's this 20 year old who's paving the way for a bunch of 17 and 18 year olds. And it's what she does with all the grace in the world. And she does it with a little bit of humor, but that's precisely what she was doing and what she continues to do today. So Janet's example of paving the way for others made it crystal clear to me on that fall day that we all have a responsibility to pave the way. And that simple act and countless others during her time on campus and beyond, she has consistently held college presidents, trustees, campus police accountable for doing the right thing. She helped many of us see that easing the discomfort of our oppressors isn't our priority, but justice is our priority. So decades later, I returned to Davidson to raise money for the college. And one of the things I had to do was raise money for the Black Alumni Scholarship. Janet Stovall was the per first person that I went out to talk to. And she helped me even at that time understand how it was that I would need to have a conversation with those Black alumni to really do what it is that I needed to do. Um, she told me what it would take and she was absolutely right. Decades later, I laughed quite frankly, when Janet told me that one of her daughters was going to attend Davidson. And then more recently, when Janet became a trustee, I had tears in my eyes because I was just beyond happy because it's unbelievable. Um, Janet, you inspired my career path, um, one that has fulfilled me beyond my wildest imagination. And for that, I owe you a lifetime of gratitude. Um, decades of Davidson students owe you a thank you because you've done so much and you continue to do so much for our alma mater and for other organizations far and wide globally. Most importantly, I must thank you for who you have always consistently been. You've been an example to each of us and someone who's willing to battle for what is right and someone on whose broad shoulders all of us can stand. So I thank you for joining us here tonight at Southern Soul Podcast. Daddy Rich. Awesome. We just must do a standing <laughs> ovation. We got the conclusion before we got the interest. Oh my God. Janet. Thank you. You are bad, girl. Oh, you did all that. Well, maybe. And you're only like, what, 35 years old? How you do all that in 15 years? 
Bless your heart, but that's oh, sweet. M G. <laughs> It is an honor and a privilege to be here tonight, Janet. I know when we chopped it up the other day, we just kind of talked about a few things. And I just won't let you know what I told Katie. I said, oh, Lord, between me talking and her talking, I don't know how we're going to stay on topic. But I'm going to do my no. best, right? No. I'm, I'm going to do my best because, you know, I love to talk and I enjoyed our conversation the other day. It was supposed to be 15 minutes, y'all. But about an hour later, I got off the phone with Janet and, you know, we had an awesome conversation. So I just want to say thank you for being here, because what I've known and what I've heard from Katie multiple times is you have planted seeds and you have not cared where they fall on rocky, on fertile ground. You have been planting seeds over these years. And I know from talking to Katie, she talks about you all the time. And I just want to thank you for being here and blessing us with this opportunity. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I appreciate you having my youngest, the one who went to Davidson um, the other day, and I just really enjoyed the webinar, that the presentation that night, and so I am so thankful that you invited me back. And Karen, thank you. I don't even know what to say to that, but thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, well, let's give a backdrop to people who, who weren't here. You know, about a month ago, we had Janet's youngest daughter on here. We do a segment we call Young, Gifted, and Black. And for those who don't know, it's a song by Nina Simone, That Girl is Bad. And, you know, she just taught Young, Gifted, and Black is where it's at. And her youngest is out there doing her thing. You know, um, what is it? The Lord of the Pies. Is it dot com? I yeah. mean, if you're in the Atlanta area and you want, I don't even know what they call, but it's like pie pie, meat pie. My favorite is actually the buffalo chicken. Ooh, child, I'm telling you, that buffalo chicken is good. But it's like, it's perfect, right? It's like, if you want a full meal, if you want to add some vegetables to it, I just appreciate that I got a chance to do that. But one thing we enjoyed and what we picked up during that segment with your daughter is that people were impressed and pleased. Like, how in the world did Janet get these people, this next generation, so productive so soon? And, you know, you know, and we were just kind of pleased. We were kind of speechless. But, you know, I just want to kind of, you know, get your thoughts on what has been your perspective over the years. And because, I mean, I, I was laughing because certain people are like, hey, uh, Janice daughter, can we, um, uh, can you give us some financial advice? I'm like, whoa, 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 that's a different segment. She ain't ready for financial advice. But they were so impressed. But tell us, you know, what are the two most important things you feel that you deal, did in route to raising productive and creative self-assured daughters? Well, the thing, one thing I did um, was I basically curated a family for them. Now, my immediate family is very small. It is dynamic. It's a bunch of, it's a lot of women and we're really strong and really, really amazing, but they're not here. So they weren't in town. They weren't close. My, um, my husband's family was here. And so they grew up around them, um, but they, and then when I got, then I, I got divorced, but you know, they, so they weren't around that family as much, but they grew up around that. But I also went beyond just my family and I curated a family for them. And like Karen was saying, as my daughter called the Davidson Mafia, there are a bunch of really amazing black alumni who came out of Davidson and we had a lifeboat mentality when we were there. And so it kept us together over the years. And so those were the people that were their play aunts and play uncles you know, a couple of them on this call, Dana's out there. She was the play aunt, you know, when, when so we had to take a birthday party to Chuck E. Cheese's. Dana's family owns a mortuary. Dana took them in the limo to Chuck E. Cheese's, you know. Um, you know, I mean, she, I don't know if their godmother's on here, but Sabrina, their godmother was there. 
I know their aunt, their, their, their blood aunt was a Davidson grad too. I mean, they were surrounded by these people. So, and a lot of them were really strong women. So they never had to question. Um, and not just my Davidson friends. I mean, I had other women who were around them. I, I, I intentionally did that. That didn't happen by mistake. I intentionally did that. I wanted them to see women from all walks of life, but all income levels, entrepreneurs, corporate divas, everybody. I wanted them to see that because I wanted them to think all things were possible. So that was part of it. The other part was once they saw that, I encouraged them to leap. I also encouraged them to leave because, I mean, I was not raising children. I was raising adults. And they used to always tell you, you know, what is what is my prime directive? To get a job and get out my mama's house. That's what they, they could quote that at six. You know, pandemic brought a lot of folks back. I'm okay with that. I'm thankful that I had the space for them to come back, but they still trying to get out. And I'm not, I'm not at all uh, apologetic, apologetic about that. I love them, but they don't want to be under my roof. I want them under their own roofs. And so those two, though, you put those things together, you give them the example of what good can look like. You teach them not to be afraid to go after it. And then you convince them that, yeah, they should be getting out your house. Combination is they go do great things out of your house. And so that's, that. I think that's it. That's what I did it. Well, well, I, I love that story. And it's very inspiring because it's nothing like the motivation of, I want to get my own place because it sounded like mama was driving them crazy just a little bit. I ain't trying to get in your Kool-Aid, but, but I think you know, they, oh. they, they can't half stand me and it's okay. <laughs> yeah oh my goodness yes indeed but tell me this because janet you know as i begin to really do research and look at you i begin to see this theme right but you know you you, you started professionally then it get personal but tell me this because of your expertise you begin to do some work in diversity equity inclusion and, and all of a sudden you know you just become quite well known right but how has this really, really shown up in your family life? How did, you know, early in your life, this begin to affect your children, your life, and your parenting style? Did you talk to your children about race? I mean, what happened? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, my kids went to private school. So we had to have these conversations very early. And I remember when my youngest went off to school, before she, she had her little uniform, I kneeled down, I looked at her, I said, okay, look at me. I'm going to tell you something right now. You're not going to understand it right now, but you will one day. Mommy is the smartest person you know. Mommy is smarter than your teachers. Mommy is smarter than your principal. Mommy is smarter than the Pope because they went to Catholic school. And mommy is definitely smarter than daddy. So mommy is smarter than anybody <laughs> you know. So if I say it, I don't care what the rest of them say to you. And so we got it clear very early. So when they said, yeah, they, they, she was looking at me like I was crazy. After about you know a couple of years, she come home with some mess. I remember one night she came home limping and I said, what is wrong with you? And she goes, I, my soul is blacker than the pits of hell. I'm like, oh, fresh hell is this? And, you know, some teacher had told her that because she didn't go to mass, that she was going to burn in hell and something like that. And I'm like, okay, first of all, what did mommy tell you? You're the smartest person I know. I'm like, I got this. And so, I mean, they are very early understood. And like I said, they were surrounded by black people, not just, you know, really, really great, but smart black people. So I never told them otherwise. I remember being at um, Davidson grad, friend's wedding down in Savannah. And we were all sitting around breakfast, uh, breakfast after the wedding. None of us had kids at that point. And the conversation came up, when you have kids, you know, will you teach them about the ways of white folks? Will you do that? And I know at least one person at the table 
said, well, you don't want to do that because you don't, you don't want to teach them that they can't achieve. And I was looking at them, I'm like, oh, heck yes, I will. Because what I don't want them to think, I don't ever want anything that belongs to me to think that if something stops them, that it was, it was because of any way that they were deficient. They need to understand that there is a world out there that will stop them simply because of the color of their skin. Now, that doesn't mean that that's an excuse for you not to achieve. It means like all of us heard, you have to do twice as much to get half as far. And my job is to make sure that you have the tools so that you can be that person. It's not fair, but that's the way it's going to be. And so I never, I never back down. Their books were black growing up. You know, we had, we had black books around black people. I was as black as I knew how to be. And so, um, you know, they went, to, I went off to private school and they thought they had street credit and they were in private school because they thought they were down. They weren't, um, you know, they, then they went to, and they went to a predominantly white high school. They, they thought they were down, they weren't, but they were still much more grounded, I think, in a lot of things. And a lot of what I told them, they didn't believe until they went to college. I mean, a lot of it was, they were like, yeah, mom was like this, you know, I have to go to school and show out periodically, a couple of times I had to show up really bad, you know, and they were walking around like this. And what I explained to them was I said, yes, I've put you in a bubble. I've put you in a bubble that teachers are going to look at you sideways, but you know what they're not going to do? They're not going to come at you with foolishness. So when my youngest had a teacher who told her that, who gave her pushback on her report because she would not, she said something, oh, she needed to say that Nat, um, Nat Turner was an abolitionist. I'm like, what? No, Nat Turner was not an abolitionist. Let me go ahead and handle that. So I had to go straighten that out. I had another one who um, a gym teacher asked her on her birthday. She's 15. What black man do you want to bring you breakfast in bed today on your birthday? I had to go in there and turn out on that one. So they always knew that if something foolish happened, they didn't have to stand up for it because I was going to stand up for it. So fortunately doing that, it did put them in a bubble, but it also meant that people thought second, thought, you know, they, they took a second thought before they said something stupid to my kids. And eventually when they got to college and they weren't just looking at this from a standpoint where they weren't living, they were living with people who were different from them. They were living with white folks and they were seeing them in social situations that they didn't see them in in high school. Cause you know, my kids didn't, I, I didn't let my kids do a lot of stuff that mm -hmm. other folks did. So a lot of the craziness that kids were even doing in high school, they didn't see their friends were black. And that's because all the mamas got together and said, all right, we ain't playing this foolishness. So this is who you hanging out with. And we were always more conservative than a lot of their white friends' parents were. So they got to college and it was like, all of a sudden, all the stuff they'd been hearing from me from all those Davidson grads they were around, they were like, oh, y'all weren't playing. This is how this is. So I still remember my daughter telling me, my oldest one, when she went to Duke, she, she was talking about how they, her class had the most EMR calls for people getting drunk and going to the hospital in the history of the college. It was her class. And I remember I was on the parents' council at Duke and I was talking about, we had a discussion about alcohol. And I said, I'm sorry, my daughter told me, uh, Black Duke doesn't do that. And all of them oh. looking at me, what's Black Duke? I said, Black Duke doesn't do that. If there's a Black Duke, I'm like, yeah, because Black Duke knows Black parents will come up here and take you out. I better not hear you in the hospital because you got so drunk you couldn't come home. I don't want to hear it. And so wow. they just were raised in that tradition. And they didn't see that. Or they thought we were making it up until they got in it. But when they got in it, they were prepared to deal with it. So They began to see it for themselves. 
Yeah. I mean, they, they just know, saw that we're very, that, that there are some very different things. And I said, you know, we were not just trying to bust your chops and not let you have a fun time. We recognize that if you go to school and do this, you will be judged differently. So I need to prepare you for that. For me not to tell them that would have been, in my, in my thing, a failure on my part as a parent. Wow. Well, Janet, you know, I, I love that story because I definitely know the opposite story. I know the people who chose not to have those discussions for whatever reason. Right. And I commend you from having those discussions because, you know, I, I've chatted with my youngest and I was like, wow, this this young lady is young. But you can tell she got this raise of focus. Right that I just haven't seen, you know, anywhere until people get much older. So I commend you on that. So I have a question and this is a little side note, but <laughs> you, you told me something the other day that really made me think, and this is going to be a tangent, you know, right. I'm a Vanderbilt grad, right? Y'all see Vanderbilt over here somewhere. And Janet told me, she says, I did not let my daughter go to Vanderbilt. Mm-mm. She like, uh, uh-uh. uh. And I said, you know what? I love Vanderbilt. I love my alma mater, but I know if something ain't right, something ain't right in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And Janet shared with me, she says, there's the South and there's the Old South. There's Old South and there's New South. Tell us about that. What, what, what does that mean, Janet? Okay, now look, I ain't gonna lie about Duke. I grew up in North Carolina. So growing up in North Carolina when I did, you talked about the big schools in North Carolina. You talked about Chapel Hill, Duke, and North Carolina State. And quite honestly, although this was totally not fair, I'll be on, you know, we're being, being blunt. The way we looked at them was, State was where you went if you wanted to be a farmer. Mm-hmm. Or um, Chapel Hill was where you went if you wanted to be in broadcast journalism or liberal arts or attorney, whatever. And Duke is where I you called went the, the Valley Girls. Valley Girls. And Duke is where you went. You were just when you were just smart. So of course, I want to go to Duke. Got accepted to Duke. Was not going to Davidson. Got accepted. Came to Davidson late. Had already accepted at Duke. Was not. Had no interest in Davidson. So. I knew, I, 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 when she started looking at Duke, I was already like, well, you know what? I already understand that one. But I, I had no idea how conservative Duke was. Now understand that Stephen Miller, that asshole in the White House, came out of Duke, all right? Um, who's the one who's, who's head of the Klan or whatever? He came out of Duke. They just kicked some guy out the other day who got kicked off the golf team. Where'd he come from? Duke. So Duke is, 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 is conservative. And just as crazy. Vandy, though, is old South. At Duke, what you have is a lot of people. I mean, I don't even know if they have Southerners anymore. Everybody at Duke's from New Jersey. Um, but <laughs> I'm sorry. This, 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 I think that they they viewed themselves. I think Duke has always held itself in North Carolina. First of all, North Carolina's got a hell of a lot of really good schools. So Duke held itself, I think, as the school for intellectuals. Mm. And it is hard. If you call yourself an intellectual, it's hard for a whole bunch of y'all. Now, there's always going to be some, because we got folks coming out of, who came out of Davidson that I, I won't claim. A couple of them in my class. A couple of them back stupid right now. A couple of them state senators. But, um, you know, so just being smart does not mean that you won't be racist and ignorant. But mm-hmm. um, you, just, you just change the words you use. You just hide your racism behind different words and different things. So I never recognized that about Duke. But Duke in comparison and in context to the other schools in North Carolina held itself to a different standard. They held themselves to a conservative standard, not a Confederate standard. Oh. And so I go to Vandy and I'm like, uh-uh. 
And my daughter actually was thinking seriously about Vandy. She was also thinking about joining the military. I stopped that too. And, um, you know, and, and the military was giving her a full scholarship to go to Vandy. And I remember sitting down with those guys and they were like, you know, if she goes to Vandy, we give her a full ride. I said, I will work a poll before I let her join the military and go to Vandy. It's not going to happen. And the guy told me, he said, I have never tried so hard to give anybody money. I said, uh-uh, not having that. We, we, my rule was, you're going to have all the options I can give you. And if you do that, you lose options. I don't know what you're going to do with them, but you're not going to lose options. And so she, but she actually ultimately made the choice because she went to Vandy and she went to like their Black Student Weekend. And then she went to Duke's Black Student Weekend. And she saw a difference in the mm-hmm. black students. And yes. I, you know, I, I don't know totally what she saw, but I got a guess. And I know um, what she saw. I ain't gonna tell nobody, <laughs> but I know what she saw. So what, do, what do you think she saw? <laughs> what she what did well, she see? Well, you know, one thing I discovered is that it, it just because it would just say all all skin, all, all brown skin folk and kin folk, what mm-hmm. anything what they say. Mm-hmm. I think there's, there's there's different flavors of it. And one thing I've seen is that in, in this work is hard. It, it's really hard work. And I've discovered that some people are like, let's say that that crazy girl out there, that Candace Owens, right? And some people are really, really for it because they're advocating for their brothers, their sisters, their cousins, right? Some people out there, they just, you know, in it for whichever way the wind blows, you know? If it's in style to be this, that's what they do. If it's in style to do that, that's what they do. I think what she probably did, coming from where you have came, I think she probably can see through people and she can see the genuine versus the not genuine. So I think she saw what she needed to see. She did. And one of her dearest friends went to Vandy and I think was fine there. And, you know, She's an amazing kid. She, a kid, she's grown now, but she's like um, in med school. She's doing amazing things. It was a different experience for her. My daughters were never um, very much into like joining the sororities. So they mm-hmm. didn't need that environment. They, 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 they just weren't drawn to that. I think one of the things too about um, Duke that was different that makes it sort of new South, but like I said, don't be confused. It's still South. I do think that part of it was being in an area where it was surrounded by a lot of other different universities and mm-hmm. both black and white. Cause you know, North Carolina yeah. like has a whole bunch of schools and Duke is sitting right there in Durham. So even if there's some craziness going on on your campus you have the influence of other people. You have a very educated populace around you. Yeah, You're in a network. I think Vandy is very much kind of isolated. I mean, there are a lot of yep. schools there too but it's, it's just in terms of where it is, it's more. You called it. I love that campus. I love Vandy. I love visiting, but I'm like, it is not. a beautiful school. But you called it. You hit the nail on the head. Vandy does not have the competition Mm-mm. that Duke has. Duke can say what they want, but Duke has competition from. They can call it what they want. Some top tier school. Mm-hmm. Vandy is a big fish in a small pond. Why do I go on this tension? Why do I even go here? Because, Jenna, one thing I noticed about when I went, I came from small town, Texas. I went to Vanderbilt. It was the greatest thing I could ever imagine. But what you did with your children, I love, is that you understood these dynamics. You weren't like, oh, brand recognition, you know, Vandy brand, you know, whatever. Dude, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's a new South. There's an old South. I want to prepare y'all to understand the difference. And I can appreciate that about you. But let me get back on the topic. I just want to go down. I'm going to take you off topic a little bit, but um, I just want to mention that. So let's talk about your TED Talk, Janet. You know, certain people, a few people may have watched your video. 
but I know I watch it. I'm going to tell you my conclusion from watching your TED Talk video. I said, OMG, 2020, 2019, I think the company I was working for then watched your video and followed every single bullet point. Good. <laughs> that you mentioned in your TED Talk video. And people who ain't seen it, I'm telling you, you got to watch this video because this video is real, it's honest, and it's practical. Because I was sitting there having an out-of-body experience. I'm like, I'm watching this video, but I just experienced this thing. I think they got their blueprint from Janet. Good. But for people who hadn't watched the video, Janet, just give them an overview. What should they expect? And then we're going to talk about how you become a TED speaker. But, you know, I know everybody didn't get a chance to watch the video, but just give them like, you know, a 30 second. Hey, this is why you should watch my video, because this is what you're going to see. Well, the thing is, is that it went back to Davidson. And, um, you know, what you don't hear in that video was, like Karen said, I had been kind of raising hell at Davidson because I went through the same experience my kids did. I got on campus and I was like, whoa, this is a world of difference. I remember my freshman year walking out of my dorm into a sea of Confederate uniforms because the KAs would have Old South Weekend and they dressed up in full Confederate regalia. And I looked at my boyfriend and I'm like, I walked out and I'm looking and everybody says, yeah, he's heading to the cafeteria. He's heading to the cafeteria. And I'm like, am I the only one that sees a problem right here? He goes, that's his old South K's. They do that. I'm like, they can't do this. He goes, they do this. So I got radicalized right then. <laughs> I mean, you know, and I was like, no, this cannot happen. So, but, but I spent three years at Davidson, mad, raising hell, acting up. And I think Dana Lemon's on this call. And I, and I, I believe she'll remember this too. Nikki Giovanni came to speak at Davidson. And I remember we were driving her back to the airport in Dana's Chevy Chevette. And I remember saying something to her, in fact, and she, I, I was bitching about Davidson or whatever. And she said to me, well, you didn't come here for the Black experience, did you? And I'm like, mm, good point. And then we all, <laughs> and then, and then see Dana shaking her head. Yeah, she's like, I, and I was like, you're right, we didn't. But then we also had a gentleman come there, Dr. Charles King, he's gone now. And he did these racism seminars. And he told me, you're the angriest little Black woman I've ever seen. Why don't you stop getting mad and get, get, get meaningful? And I didn't understand that at that point. But fast forward my junior year, I was so tired that I went to pick my books up from, from school, spring term, took them back to my apartment, dropped them in the floor and cried for three days. I was that tired. I said, I cannot do this anymore. I withdrew from school. Then my parents never knew because I took my butt to summer school and I walked across that stage in four years like I was supposed to. So they never knew. I was literally not in school spring term my junior year because the, the, the fight had gotten me to that point. But in that 10 weeks, between what Nikki said to me and what Dr. King said to me, I stopped and said, all right, I've been mad for three years. I've been yelling at these people for three years. I need to, st I need to tell them what to do. I need them to tell me what they're not going to do. And I said, so I needed to give them something to say no to. I learned that lesson at Davidson. So in my TED Talk, after the fight I went through to get that thing written, and I'll talk about how that went through, but you know, when I finally got to what was sort of the statement that I needed to make about DEI now in this world, what I learned was you have to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, not as something that's in your heart or in your spirit, but it's in your head. You have to be objective about some very subjective issues. So in my TED talk, what I say to businesses, you know, businesses have been walking around 
we've been making this case for diversity, the business case for diversity has been around for almost 50 years. We started making it after the, um, after, after the law said in the 60s that you have to have equal hiring, you know, the Equal Opportunity Act. That's when we started talking about it. And it was about quotas. 50 years we were making this case. If the case made sense, we wouldn't still be making it. So my point was, this is BS. If business really wants to be diverse, there are three things it needs. It needs real problems, real numbers, real consequences. And by real problems, what I mean is stop talking about diversity in general and start asking yourself up front, what does diversity solve for for me? Does diversity solve anything for me? Now, I can't think of too many companies that would say, no, maybe if your business is making clan robes, you don't really have a need for diversity. Maybe. But, you know, even then you might just to like test out what scares people. I don't know. But I mean, you really you might not have you might not really have a need for diversity. Any other company has got a need. But what will they tell you? They'll answer in platitudes. They'll say things like, well, it drives innovation. Does it? You know, I used to work for UPS. If UPS didn't hire another black person tomorrow, would UPS go out of business? No, it would not. So, no. Diversity does not necessarily drive innovation. Diversity can drive it. It can give you a competitive advantage. But if you have not put in place the structure to tap into that diversity, if all you have are bodies in the building and you haven't figured out how to do be inclusive or work on equity or build ways to monitor, make a connection between it, no. The reality is, is they finally, I think it was Boston Consulting Group, finally came out with a study where they looked at companies that were very diverse. And they said, let's look at companies that, that they defined innovation by products that had been, product, new products or services introduced within three years of this survey. And they looked at companies that were very diverse and companies that were less diverse. Companies that had, had innovation, had spent, got some, the ones that were very diverse, got something like 45% of their income came from new products products introduced in three years. The ones that were less diverse, it was something like 20-something percent. Bottom line is there was a 19% diversity variance between those companies. So companies that were very diverse had 19% more innovation than companies that didn't. But the reason they knew that was because whoever those companies were, were measuring that. They had decided that we're going to solve for innovation. So they had systems in place. Real numbers are those numbers you have to get. Once you know what you're solving for, you got to have some real numbers behind it, which means you have to have metrics. Metrics are not counting the bodies in the building because you got diversity. So what? Do you have it? Do you yeah. have inclusion? Do you have equity? And real consequences are the bottom line is this. Go in. You, you really want to make diversity count? Go in and start tying some of those real numbers to people's compensation. And I'm not talking 5% because if I'm on the senior leadership team and I'm making a couple of million a year, I don't give a damn about 5%, but you know what? I do care about 20%. So if you tell me that 20% of my bonus is going to depend on hitting these numbers, I'm paying attention now. And if if you're a company and you're not doing that, then you aren't serious. And that's what I said in my TED talk. I didn't go that deep in it, but um, that's basically what, because you 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 have limited time on stage. But basically that's what I said. Is I love the way. You know, yeah. I love the way you described it because you still didn't, you described it, you summarized it, you gave that incentive to watch the video, but it's still, you didn't spoil it. 
So it's no spoiler alert. Guys, check out this video. She just recently hit 10 million views. No, not 10. Two. No, not 10 million. Two. Okay. Well, well, all right. Well, I'm naming it and claiming it, girl. I'm just going to claim it. Because we're going to get to 10 million. And I'm claiming it. But the company what, 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 I was what, what, now was talking about they were rounding up to two million. I'm like, you don't have to round up anymore. It's now at two million. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's now at two million. So um tell me this. Let's let's kind of backtrack a little bit because you know, I, I love the TED Talk and I just dropped the link in the TED Top so people can watch it. Please do watch this because I'm telling you the way she breaks it down, she makes a very complicated topic simple. But let's let's back up a minutes. little bit. It's only eleven. One minutes. thing one thing you did is um I, I give my alma mater a hard time. Because in your TED Talk, that's what you did. You gave your alma mater a hard time, but still, yet and then, you still became a trustee. And sent my kid there. Yeah, and you sent your kid there. So it's okay to give our alma mater a hard That's what I got from you. Because, you know, I, I, when I went to business school, they say, doubt shall never give your alma mater a hard time. And when I watched your TED Talk, I said, wow, she's giving her alma mater a hard time, but she's a trustee. And she sent her kid there. But tell me about this. How would you describe the school now compared to where what it was when you graduated in the 80s? The reason Karen's laughing is because I literally had a call that ended five minutes for this, a trustee call. Mm -hmm. We've had a little bit of a snafu mm -mm. at my college where we've had some alums who have decided that um, they don't like a decision that the trustee board made. Davidson's a Presbyterian school. And our board voted uh, to change the bylaws so that the president does not have to be a Presbyterian and 80% of the board doesn't have to be Presbyterian. And we knew that that would be uh, a difficult decision. But there was a survey that went out to the college and not surprisingly, younger alumni were down for the change. Those old white guys who graduated in the 50s, they didn't want to see me there. They didn't want to see Karen and Dana and Michelle there and Anissa. Anissa. They didn't want to see any of us there. They didn't want to see women or black people there. Black people got there in the, in the late in the late sixties. Women got there in the seventies. So those guys who graduated really didn't like this change. And so we knew there was going to be a mess. Well, we had some alumni, basically some of the older ones, uh, do some mess, send out an email with with, with, the, with the emails addresses that they should not have had, and it's it's a big hullabaloo right now. So I was on a call about that. Um, and the reality is, is that Davidson has changed a lot. A lot of the alumni haven't changed. I remember when, um, my senior year, I was president of the Black Student Coalition and we got a new president and he sat me down because he'd heard, you know, uh, what was going on. He, we did an interview and he said, please don't embarrass me. I said, don't make me embarrass you. I won't. <laughs> and, we were, and we were having, and I actually love this guy, Dr. Kirkendall. We call him Dr. John. We loved him. And um, we got through the interview. Nobody had any problems. The very last question the reporter asked was, what's it going to take to change Davidson? And I looked at him and said, a lot of funerals. And the problem is a lot of funerals. That's what it's going to take. A lot of these people who were in, in the 50s just got to die and be gone because the world has changed. Davidson is changing and it has changed in many, many ways. It has not changed in many, many ways. I mean, it distresses me when I talk to my daughter while she was at Davidson. I hear her complain about some of the same stuff that I complained about. So why I joined the trustee board was because when I got the, when the door opened for me to do it, I said, all right, this is where the things get changed. And this is where the decisions get made. And 
what I what I hope I bring to the trustee board. Now, people got me on there because unfortunately a lot of folks didn't know any better. They sorry now, but I'm there and there's nothing new about it. And so I do the same thing on that trustee board that I do and have done in corporate America. I use that, I take, I take that frustration and I leverage it and I use it. Because if I don't take the opportunity to be that voice in that space, shame on me. Mm-hmm. Because that's my opportunity. So when I look at the fact that we got black professors leaving, I'm going to ask some follow-up questions. You know, when I when this whole decision came up about the whole um, issue about changing the bylaws, I remember being on a big Zoom call, and um, I wasn't the only one who said this, but I remember saying, you know, look, you look at the Zoom call. If we didn't change, I wouldn't be on this call right now. I wouldn't be here. And so we have to change. If I don't use that voice, and so when I looked at where the decisions were made, they're made at that level. So I can be out here, you know, on the other shore raising all the hell I want. I can, I can write a check to Davidson, which gives me the right to raise a little bit more hell. I can be a parent and an alum, and I can raise even more hell, but I can be on a trustee board and I can make some votes. And if I'm not there and if I'm not using that space, then like I said, shame on me. I've wasted the opportunity. And I do the same thing in corporate America. I mean, I've been, I've, I, won't, I will say I've been fortunate that um, I've been able to be in positions where I get to whisper in the ears some really big people. I mean, writing as a speechwriter for UPS. I mean, I was a speechwriter for the CEO of one of the biggest companies in the world, $72 billion company. And the CEO, the former CEO of UPS, the one that I worked with, was from Greenwood, Mississippi. And you got to believe when he saw me, he did this. Because I was for many years, the only black speechwriter in the Fortune 500. There's another one now. She just got there. There were no others. And so here I am whispering in the ear of this guy from Greenwood. And, I, and one of the things I am most proud of in my career was that after working with me for about three years, that man stood up on stage in front of the ELC, the Executive wow. Council, which is some of the top black people in America and said, I grew up believing that separate and equal, separate but equal. I had to get to UPS to find out that things were separate, but they weren't any parts equal. He got a standing ovation. They stood up. People still come to me. Wow. Say, that speech? I'm like, yeah, I wrote that speech and I had to wow. fight for him to say it. But he had to trust me enough. Wow. And I had to be in that place because he'd had speechwriters before. He'd had white guys look like him when they interviewed me for the job. Because I didn't care. I'd run my own business for 20 years. Only reason I went back to corporate America because my daughter was going to college. I'm like, I would like stock options. Yes. So when UPS tried to hire me and the guy who hired me, who was my boss, who I adore to this day, didn't think about the fact that I was a black woman coming in there. But his boss interviewed me and said, so he was him and hawing around the question. And I said, why don't you go on and ask me what you want to ask me? Mm. He what I said, what you want to know is how I'm going to get along with David Abney. He kind of looked at me and I said, and I said, he says, well, yeah. I said, okay, look, if David Abney is an old white guy, just like you, I said, and if David Abney was only talking to old white guys, I, I wouldn't be the best speechwriter for him. I said, but you know what I am? I'm black. I'm a woman. I'm a divorcee. I'm a mother. I'm this, I'm this, I'm a business owner. I said, I check off a hell of a lot more boxes. And if David Abney were only speaking to little old white guys who look like him, then no, he doesn't need me. But the people he's talking to, I check off a whole lot more boxes in that area. So mm-hmm. that, so you decide whether that's the right choice. And he made the choice and I came in. 
But like I said, the fact that there are no black speechwriters or very few in the Fortune 500 working at the CEO level tells you that those people think you got to look like them to speak for them. And so I am thankful that the guy who hired me, who spent his whole career telling me, well, what does, I used to always say, well, what is, was he, he what's trouble look like to you? And that was his question. What does trouble look like to you? And I'm like, don't like getting fired. Let me go blow it up. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. that, you know, and, and like I said, but that's what, it, that, that's what diversity has been to me. I, I've always used that position to push the needle. If I ever got in a place where I wasn't supposed to be, I did all the things I wasn't supposed to do. Mm. And I'm going to wow. keep doing it. I'm doing it now. <laughs> you know, you know, I love that because the young folks, they call it unapologetic is what they call it. You know, Rihanna, she got a album, unapologetic, but it's just a cliche. What you just said to me is, wow, what it means to live a unapologetic life. And I thank you for that, because I know you have helped people see the things that they couldn't see into a experience the thing that they experience. We got five minutes before we open up the questions. So Katie, hopefully you got about 10 questions ready to go. I want my brother Vic to um, speak because I know he got some questions because he's in Nashville. I got a few Vanderbilt alum on there and they mad at me. I want y'all to come with your questions. I see Tina, I see some, I see a bunch of people. Get your questions ready. Feel free, we're gonna do open forum. This is family, this is safe. We're gonna talk about it. But Jen, I got two questions just to wrap us up before we go into questions. Okay. So this is an academic question. I'm just gonna read it. Creating a world in which our academic institutions are anti-racist and creating a corporate environment where, I, where DI, that's diversity, equity, inclusion, inclusion mm-hmm. isn't a buzzword, but is woven throughout the corporate practice and it works for black people. But I need to understand, sometimes people put this on, you know, the white people at corporate. Sometimes, you know, the black people are sitting there watching. Janet, what is your perspective? What role do people of color take in the D in shaping the DEI conversation? We are the DEI conversation. I mean, we're it. Look, look, I understand and I am never going to say and I tell white folks all the time. Do not go and assume that this is the work of people of color. Because you know what? We're tired. We are exhausted. Being a person of color right now is about dealing with trauma. It always has been, but it's been even worse in the past few years. So um, we're tired. But those of us who choose either to not be tired that day or to say, I'll just take this on, That is what we do. That is what we should do. Because if we allow them, if we allow anybody other than us to drive this effort, then we get what we get. I think a good example is um, I'm having this discussion right now in the position I'm in where there are a lot of companies who have, who discovered Juneteenth last year. They just (laughs) discovered it. And so now we got a lot of folks who coming around talking about, can we do an anti-racism seminar? And, um, you know, my company is, is stepping into that space and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it. And I finally had this epiphany that I'm like, you know what? No, our job is to tell them this is not the holiday to do that. We don't do that. That is not when we, this is not, no, that is not a good match. Let's not. And um, so if I'm not in the space saying that, somebody with the best of intentions, they don't mean any harm. 
I mean, these are white companies who are saying, okay, we want to do Juneteenth. We ain't giving anybody a day off, but we want to do Juneteenth. So, you know, <laughs> what can we do? And if, if I've got people who are well-meaning, who are in that space, who say, you know, well, we could do an anti-racism seminar. If I'm not there to say, no, you're not. That's not what you're going to do. Do you realize Juneteenth is a celebration? So, no, we're not trying to do that. It's about us. It's about what we want. If we aren't there telling them, telling people, this is what we want. This is what it means to us. This is what inclusion looks like to me. If we don't tell them, then we get what we get. So absolutely, we have to do it with the understanding that some days we can't. It's, it's exhausting. And, you know, I think I've, I've, I've been watching very closely because I actually think I'm gonna start working on a PhD within the next couple of years. And um, one of the things I've been watching is what's happening with chief diversity officers. You know, you ask somebody to be a chief diversity officer, do you realize that the, the average tenure of a chief diversity officer is three years? Wow. They wear them out. Yeah. Nobody wants that job. Because if you come in there, you are responsible for saving a company who generally has been screwing up for a lot longer than you got there. They put that work on us to fix. We can't fix it all. So if you're gonna step into that work, you gotta be willing to step in that work and tell people, let me tell you what we are not gonna do. You're not gonna make me responsible for this mess you created. I'll come in here and I'm gonna do this, but you're either gonna listen to me or you're not. If you don't listen to me, you get what you get. I can't tell you how many times as a communications person, I've told folks, don't do that. And they did it anyway. And I sit around and go, don't come to me because I told you not to do it. But if I hadn't told them not to do it, then I can't get mad. So my thing is, is that we come from a tradition. And I think I said this to you in our call. We as Black people especially come from a tradition of forgiveness. Western Christianity tells us we should forgive. You know, the, the civil rights movement, there was, there was a huge part of that that said, turn the other cheek. Um, mm -hmm. we have been taught that we should forgive. I don't forgive nothing. I don't forgive nothing. I don't forgive anything. I don't, uh, I don't let you get away with anything, but I also ended up, like I said, my junior year, crapping out and couldn't deal with it anymore. That is the chance you take to fight this fight all the time. And we, and we all have to fight it in our own way. The way I yes. fight it is not the way someone else is going to fight it. It, it, it is exhausting, but, and, and people hate me. I said on my TED talk, I'm that friend that nobody, I have ruined so many dinner parties. Hmm. You know, people don't even invite me to stuff anymore. Don't care. Because if you say something sideways, I am not going to forgive you for it. I'm not going to say it's okay. I'm not going to let you, if I hear it, and if it registers that day, I'm going to call you on it every time. I don't advocate wow. that you do that, but that's what, you, that's what I do. That's how it works what for me. Well, you know, Janet, you know, I'm looking at the attendee list and the people who have logged on tonight, and I'm telling you, you are around company tonight. I'm looking at some of the people. Um, you know, we got Leslie Lowe, an old friend of mine, Natalie Balkum, PhD. I'm going to bring her back to talk to the people about how do you do that PhD? She don't know it yet. She just heard for the first <laughs> time. But what I'm trying to tell you is that I appreciate Every single word you hear said, because the people need to hear it. I got my brother Vic on here, brother from another mother. But I'm telling you that Vic, he may be a white guy, but he has a heart that is golden. And I guarantee you, he's not only listening, he's inspired and he got questions. 
So let's go ahead and transition. It's the top of the hour. KD, what you got for us? You're on mute. I'm mute. Unmuting. Okay. Um, actually, you mentioned Natalie Bauckham, and she's been lighting up. So Natalie has a question that she wanted to ask. Okay. Natalie, I'm unmuted, right? Yeah. Yes, you are. Yes. Okay. Um, good evening, and I'm, I'm sorry that um, I am not on camera. Girl, I'm not up. camera ready, but anyway. Whatever. So, okay. um, so I have like two questions, and there's, of course, they're centered around academia, right? Because I'm a professor. I'm a professor of business, and um, so my colleagues and I. Uh, who are also black faculty at various universities at PWIs and HBCUs. It is a consistent and constant conversation about we're told um, when we are students, oh, we want black faculty, we need black faculty, we really want diversity. And then as soon as we go out on the job, um, we go on, we go on the uh, market is what they call it. When we go on the market, then, then the excuses come mm -hmm. as to why we are not ready for a tenure track position. Um, and then the other, converse, the other conversation is, so the second, the, the other caveat is, let's say you get the tenure track position, you do your five years, you go up for tenure, you're denied. I've had several friends over the years, I've been teaching 14 years to be denied tenure over little things. Mm -hmm. Now, so my uh, first question is, what is your opinion, feedback, <laughs> um, suggestions on how black professors sit down and have these conversations at these universities about their commitment to diversity in a job interview and as a tenured faculty, if you're, if you're one of the few to get tenured, because what we're seeing is, um, and I just had this conversation earlier today, that's why I jumped on this podcast tonight, was even the black faculty that's tenured, they're not paving the way for us. They're not willing to sit down and risk their tenure or whatever they need to risk in order to go to bat for those of us who need tenure track positions. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you, you probably, I'm sure you are probably aware of um, the sister who wrote the 1619 Project. They denied her tenure at um, UNC. Mm -hmm. just yeah, that, so that's been all the rage the last 24 oh, yeah. hours of, of our conversations as well. And that was my second, that was going to be my second question to you about, um, about that. And our, in, in the conversation that I had with my friends, they were all like really shocked because they were like, well, if a Pulitzer Prize winner and a merit scholar couldn't get a tenure track position, who and who can't? Like, well, we're true. all doomed. I mean, at this point, it's like sending a message to all of us like, oh, we're really doomed at this point. Well, the reality is, is I mean, even back when I was 19 at Davidson and knew nothing about the word world of academe or anything, it seemed to me very logical. I remember saying to Dr. Kirkendall, I said, okay, so you say you can't find black professors. I said, well, if you wanted the CEO of IBM to come teach a class, you'd pay him more, right? He went, yeah. I said, so the reality is, is that it's, it's about supply and demand. And there aren't as many black 
faculty that's out there that can come or want to go to PWIs. I mean, Davidson has this issue. It's like, well, nobody wants to live in Davidson. You're surprised? Who wants to live there? I mean, when we were going to school, they, they were required to live in the town. Nobody wanted to do that. At least now they can live in Charlotte, but then they got to fight that traffic on Lake Norman to get over there. So it's not an ideal situation. Colleges need to understand that for Black people coming to most universities, that's hazard duty. And that means you need hazard pay. And I mean, Michelle Serrano is on this call right now. I know we've been struggling in Davidson because we got black professors leaving. And what they're saying is that, you know, we have these rules. Davidson says, or I'm sure a lot of schools do this. We have these rules. This is what tenure track looks like. This is this, this and this. But like I said earlier, a lot of times black faculty have done twice as much to get half as far. You have three times the class load. You're not just teaching classes, you are mentoring students. You are keeping, keeping them from jumping off the bridge. You're being the, vo you're being the voice of black America. You have a heavier load. Well, you know what? Different rules should apply to you. So I will say to any university, if you are serious, and I always go back to, if you are serious, then you need to look at this with an objective eye and say, your black faculty have a different kind of load. They have a different type, psychological and academic and professional. And if you're not willing to do what it takes to bring them on, to keep them there, to tenure them, to tenure them early if you have to, because you know what, you do it when you need to. If you wanted the CEO of IBM, you do what you need to. You tenure them earlier. You pay them more. You do whatever you had to do. So they I do it all the time. You will do it. And so what I say to, and I, and because I and not been not being in academia, I'm not in the conversations. So I'm on the side where I talk to colleges and where I talk to as a trustee, where I argue with our trustee boards. Like I don't want to hear that foolishness. If you really want to do it, this is what you need to do. And if you don't do it, then okay, that's fine. But what you're not going to do is you're not going to say to the world that you're serious. I will call you on your commitment every day because you do. And if you never, if you never make exceptions, okay, but I know you do. So you need to make exceptions here. And you know, the argument they made about the um, woman from the 1619 project was they said, well, in this political environment, that's BS. That is absolute BS. They didn't want to do it and they didn't want, and they just didn't do it. So I hope that their alumni will call them on the carpet because yeah. trustee boards, trustee boards should never block a tenure unless there's extenuating circumstances. For an I adult just, chair, that's very unusual to occur yeah. for an adult chair not to come in with a, you know, with tenure, but you have, um, so, but, I'm not really sure if you're aware, but there I've, I've attended a couple of conferences um, at UMass Boston because I also teach there part time. And there are right wing organizations that are funding the intentional dismantling of higher education. I'm not surprised because um, they hate they hate the, the like I said earlier, you change the language. But at the end of the day, what keeps racism going is ignorance mm -hmm. and smart people find different ways to leverage ignorance they exactly. change what ignorance looks like and so what they do is they go in and they just they just find the pretty words to do the same thing that the confederates have been doing forever they just find pretty words to do it and one of the issues that has been for for the right for the right the right has been liberal institutions and education they hate that 
They hate education because educated people, truly educated people ask questions. And you cannot ask questions and keep this BS going. Janet, I have a question for you. Um, one of the things, and this is in relation to what Natalie is saying, but also another question that's popping up, something that you mentioned during while you were talking was we need to give them something to say no to. Mm-hmm. So when we think about things like academia and the way that we're consistently blocked out of progress in terms of uh, tenure check positions and things like that, do you have suggestions for what is the thing to say no to? Because what I sense is that there is a, there's a sense that we've just got to take it because they're saying it. But what you did at Davidson was you did Project 87, right? It's like, okay, here's the list of all the things that you can say no to. Mm-hmm. So give us some words of empowerment, I guess is what I'm asking you for. I go back to the question, and I think this is the same thing as in academia as it is in corporate America. What are you solving for? Mm-hmm. And I, we can argue all day about something being the right thing to do. I don't even bother with that anymore because there are people who thought slavery was the right thing to do. So I ain't trying to get into that argument with them. Right. The question is, what is, what, what is it that you as an organization, as a university, have decided in a corporation what have you decided that you're going to say to the world is what you care about so if you are an academic institution and you are saying i care to say to the world that we are an inclusive environment that we are we are educating the next generation and that we believe diversity is important then what are your numbers and Mm -hmm. davidson back when i was in college because you know Thank you, Calvin, for saying what you did, but I was in college a long time ago. And so back then, you know, with, with Project 87, I didn't just come up with that number. I said 10 professors. That was a very calculated number. I looked across all the disciplines that we had at Davidson. And I said, what are the disciplines where the issue of racism might actually be tilted, where we might move the needle? needle. It was like sociology, economics, English, what were the, what were the, what was the low hanging fruit? Where could we find, where, where do we need to have this discussion? Yes. Should we have this discussion in chemistry? Absolutely. Should we have black professors in chemistry? Absolutely. But should we be having this discussion in English and in sociology and economics? Yeah. Okay. So I found five of them. They were the ones we had. And I said, all right, now where, and then I went and found and mind you, I had to go to the library and pull a Dewey Decibel system because there wasn't no internet, but I had to go figure out where are Black people graduating? And we were graduating in these fields. We were in the position to be, we were getting PhDs. There weren't a handful of us. We were getting PhDs in these disciplines. Put those two together and said, all right, so our best opportunity to find faculty is in these five disciplines. Give me two. Go find me too. And so that's why we said a number of 10 black faculty. I didn't make that up. And so when you ask what it is you have to hold people to, what you're calling for, you have to really say, what is my formula? So if I am a university that is highly focused, for example, in the STEM fields, then I might not necessarily need to be trying to find two, three, or, or department. My daughter's an engineer, the oldest one I went to do. There were no black professors. There were no black teachers that really that she could lean on. So you know what? It's a STEM field. Go find me a black engineer and bring him here. That's my priority. If you recognize that the pool is small, you prioritize and you focus and you spend more money on that professor. You get that professor. You give me a reason to say no. So you say to a university, you say you want to increase this. 
set a number, set a goal. This is the goal I'm going to give you. Say no. I said that to Davidson. I want 10. Tell me you can't find 10. Mm -hmm. Now you might tell me I can't find but six. Okay, let's start negotiating there. But tell me you can't find 10. I know you can. Tell me no. Because what you're not going to do is you're not going to tell me that you want to do this. And then you're not going to do this number. Because mm -hmm. right now it's amorphous. It's fuzzy, fuzzy logic. I don't bother with fuzzy logic. I will give you a number and you tell me why you can't hit this number. And if your reason is good, I'll listen. But I didn't think 10 was unreasonable. It might have been. I don't know. Didn't know I was 20. What did I know? Um, so if I'm a company and I say, we're going to increase this number, the first question I'm going to ask you is why? Why are you doubling this number? Why are you setting this number? What have you done before? You know, if you haven't had but three Black people in the history of your organization or your college, you're not going to get to 20. So that's a stupid number. What's a number we can hit? Be realistic. And then tell me why you can't do it. So thank Janet, that's some really concrete advice. Um, I'm gonna give Anissa a moment to get off a of mute because she had a question. That's Anissa, I know Anissa. <laughs> out there that yeah. I'm a little bitter, but you didn't care about math back in the day. Cause I could have used some black. <laughs> Let me be perfect. Yeah, and, and Katie, why are you doing that? I, I see my brother Vic there. He, he's he got the, the, the thinking pose. I wanna hear from him. I see him, um, yeah. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Natalie, for speaking up. I just got some people who I know is vocal. Um, did we give a shout out for, before we go to the next question, give me a shout out for Vic. Vic has a awesome, awesome, awesome book club that he does. Uh, was it Zoom, IG Live? It don't matter. It's live. And next Wednesday, they're going to be covering the book cast. This just man, finished it. Just finished it. Everybody should read it. It's exactly. Perspective on the world. So, so, so let's join Vic's book club next week. And, you know, oh, he's my brother from another mother. He don't look like me, but I'm telling you, the brother got a heart of gold. Let's put that in the chat and let's, Vic, I want to hear from you. Please don't be shy. I, I know you got some thoughts, but Katie, keep going on your agenda. I just want Vic to feel at home because I know he's doing some good work. And one thing I've learned from this work is that sometimes you have to find allies and Vic is a brother that I consider an ally, and that's why I'm giving him this moment. So let's please put his um, his book club in the chat, and let's go to your next question, Katie. Sure. That was Anissa, and I will, Anissa Patton, go ahead and ask your question. Well, I was going to tell you to read it. Girl, you, you can speak. <laughs> okay. So, hey, Janet. Hey, sweetie. How are you? Hey, I'm girl. fine, sis. I'm fine. So, You're um. <laughs> Go cat. She mad at me for calling out Vandy, but keep going. No, my daughter, my so I want to say my daughter was listening and she kind of felt a little bit, you know, hurt. So I was like, was oh, was, yeah. <laughs> she was hurt. She'll be all right. <laughs> no, I didn't recognize it till after five years after I graduated. She she's just, yeah, she's a little bit in her feelings. But so this will be a quick, you know, I had a setback this week, my sister. And mm -hmm. I'm trying, I've been venting, I'm trying to vent the proper way, but just what's your take on that nonsense? Like when you don't get a promotion or, you know, you don't get the, the, the um, nomination or something. And the, the, one of the reasons that the people, the person gives, this is white man gives is that um, you don't appear to be able to be collaborative or you have an attitude, you know, or you're difficult, any of those mm -hmm. words. Check all of the above. Yeah. 
I mean, it, it is it is painful. There is no doubt that that is painful. That is the patriarchy. That is racism. There's a cat who's going to claw my leg. That's why I keep looking down. I'm telling my daughter, come get her cat. But um, so the, the patriarchy is real. The racism is real. That is what privilege and power that we come up against. That, that's what we come up against. And yes, you think about it. What they're looking for is they're looking for you to agree. They're looking for you to be, um, to get along. And if you don't get along, that is the price we pay. And that I am an advocate for, um, I don't, I don't want to pay that price. And yes, I've lost because of that. And that's why I said, I will never tell anybody how they should be, what their black should be. I will not, I will never tell you that. I will never tell you what your woman should be. Because if you got a family to feed, if you have a career to advance, then yes. And I'll be honest with you, I'm a wimp because Back in 1988-89, I had a very good friend, Davidson Grant, who said to me, you know what? You really don't know how to play the corporate game. I love you, but you don't know how to play it. I'm like, you know what? You might be right. So I left and started my own company. And I ran my company for 20 years. And I didn't come back into corporate America until I came back at the level where I could be the speechwriter for the CEO of one of the biggest companies in the world. But... And so I'm not, I'm not kidding. And I don't, I, don't, I don't kid myself that a whole lot of hell that I raised, I got to raise because of the position I was in. Had I not been self-employed to the point that I could tell people, no, you pissed me off. No, I won't work with you again. No, but I knew my limitations. If you are working in corporate America or if you are in the space that you're in the legal space and you have built your career and you run up against a white person who does some crap like that to you, that is painful. That's what we deal with. And, you know, but here's what I'm going to tell you, which is probably not what you need to hear from me right now, but I'm going to tell you, God bless you, because I'm glad you were the one that he did, that he, that he was thought was difficult. Because clearly you have done something that made this man uncomfortable. You didn't go along to get along. Whatever it was that he didn't like, I applaud you for doing. And I know that it may... It isn't fair. It is not fair. And I'm, I'm not the one to tell you not to do it because I think we have to do it. But there is no really good advice for that. You just have to decide where you're going to be. We talked about allyship. Allyship is on a continuum. And I think Blackness is on a continuum as well. And you have to choose where you're going to be in that continuum at any given time. And there's no way that anybody can tell you what's right. There are consequences. And whatever you did that made this man think that you weren't going to get along with him, I'm like, yay. But I'm sure that that makes it then difficult because it's not fair. You should not have had to lose an opportunity because you said what was right. But that is the world we live in. Unfortunately, that's, that's, that, it, it sucks. And so I'm just hoping for you and I'm believing for you and I'm going to claim for you that that same spirit that pissed that white man off is going to take you somewhere else to do something better for somebody else. Because I know the work you do in this. I know. I know the space you're in. You are changing lives and saving lives. Mm -hmm. And that one white man is just one more thing you got to step over.
And I'm going to wish some bad shit on him, quite honestly. I shouldn't, <laughs> but I am, because that's who I am. Lord have mercy. He just, he just doesn't know. Hmm. Uh, and, and this, uh, love yeah. you give a shout out for the work that you do, please. Oh, Lord. Love yeah. you guys. <laughs> but it was for the state. I want to give you this. So the, the position was a nomination for the state Georgia child advocate, you know, and I've been doing this for like 20 years, won all these awards. I teach classes in it. You know, I know I'm one of the, I didn't even make the interview list to meet with the governor about the position. You know, and this is one white man that, you know, I, I stood up to him a couple of times, never mm -hmm. fought him, but I stood up to him and he made the comment, you know, about the collapse. So I'm thinking about actually filing a complaint. But anyway, love Ooh. you guys. I like that too. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Have mercy. Lord, have I hope you write it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I posted Vix. And for, um, thank you so much, Anissa, first of all, for asking the question. And thank you, Janet, for your response. Um, I posted Vic's information about the cast book discussion in the chat for anyone who does want to join. And I wanted to go ahead and uh, um, I guess put Vic on the spot to see if he had any questions to ask also. Vic, you VIP tonight, man. That's very kind. Thank you, everybody. And um, I, uh, I have several questions, but I'm going to choose one. Okay. Uh, and, and, and I'm going to, before I say that, I'm going to say thank you so much for your work. And I appreciate the invitation to be here tonight because um, it's been really, really insightful um, and powerful. And, uh, and, and I think that is wonderful and helpful. So the question is, when you are a part of a society that bends to the emotions of white men, emotional patriarchy, how does that end without the participation of the white men who benefit from that exact dynamic? It doesn't without violence, quite honestly. Um, and that's not where we're gonna go. We're never gonna do that. Um, here's the thing, black folks, white, black folks, black women, anybody who is a traditionally underrepresented group, if you're honest, you know that if you had that power and privilege, you wouldn't give it up either. We absolutely would not. Um, so I understand why it's not going to change easily. Um, so in our small spaces where we chip at that wall, if you're Game of Thrones fans, you know about the wall, you know, it's huge, it's a monolith, and it just took one dragon blowing some water to bring all that, blowing some fire to bring all that thing down. But if we chip at this wall, where we chip at it in our spaces is that, I believe that the way we will slowly do it is white men's interests have to align with everybody else's interests. And let's be clear, it's white cisgender men. That, that's, yeah. that's who's running this, okay? At least in this country, probably around the world, but at least in this country. So all those people who are not that, not that and those who are even furthest away from it, um, we have to chip at it bit by bit. And my, my, my journey has been, and, and I finally got here, was to chip at it by either calling you on the, calling that group on the crap that they've said they want to do, or finding a way to give us what I call superannuated, uh, su super, superannuated goals. What can we agree on? You know, what can we agree on? And then how can I, in my single-minded way, 
turn that to a discussion. So if I'm dealing with white men in a company and we agree that there are business strategies that we want to we want to do, I'm going to come in and I'm not going to argue with you about what the right thing to do is. I'm going to argue with you, you want to get this goal? You want to sell this goal? Let me tell you how diversity can do that. Let me tell you how black folks can do that. Let me tell you how Native American people can do that. This is how we do that. We got to speak a common language. And that is difficult for those of us who have been tired of talking. We are tired of it. We're worn out. But at the end of the day, that's the only way it's going to change. We, because people in general, and now I'm going to use, put my, you know, my newer leadership hat on, um, bias and, and all those things are in our brains. We, we, are, we have survived as a species because we figured out how to make some shortcuts. We have figured out what's in group, what's out group. We find our tribes. All that stuff is biologically based. So at the end of the day, it is not going to change through any logical or rational discussion. So we can't talk to white cisgender men and say, give up your privilege. Why would they? We would not. So I can't ask that. But what I can say is, let me tell you how we can all win in this. Let me tell you why this makes sense for you. Let me tell you why I can align with what you're trying to do and help you do it better. And it's not subversive. It is what the underclass or the underprivileged or the less privileged have always done. Now, what's scaring people, which is why we had the president that we did and why we had January 6th, where we got Mitch McConnell and all them doing crazy shit, is because for the first time, this is not about to be an intellectual argument. We're about to be out, you're about, white cisgender men are about to be outnumbered. And you see what's happening. Let me give a shout out to a woman I think is brilliant. Um, her name is Jennifer Richardson. She is a MacArthur Fellow, a Guggenheim Fellow, a um, professor at Yale. And she wrote an article several years before the 2016 election. And she said, we need to stop talking about the brown of America because it scares the hell out of white people. And it came back. Jennifer Richardson is also my cousin. So I'll tell you, my fa- this is not my family roles, okay? This is how the, the family group chat is on fire. But Jennifer said, we cannot talk about this because it scares the hell out of white people. And it does, because that, that is the true reality. The browning of America is happening. Now, I'm not stupid because I don't care how brown it gets. The power dynamic has not changed. We get browns we want. But what's going to happen is over time, this is scaring the shit out of people. I mean, this is why we have abortion rights now, because they're scared about the fact that the numbers are changing. The demographics are changing. So to the long answer to your question is, what I'd like us to do is be able to sit down and have discussions about why this is mutually beneficial for all of us. But underlying that discussion, sort of things when the un, what's being un, not said is that these dynamics are gonna change anyway because the world is changing. The world is brown. The world is going back to what it was. It started brown, it's going back brown. That's the way it is. Um, there is a guy, Jared Diamond. He wrote Guns, Germs, and Steel, which I think is an amazing- I love idea. that book. I love that book, yeah. And um, yes. But he also wrote Collapse, which is why societies collapse. And one of the things he talked about was the middle class goes away. 
That, that's one of the things that happens. And we see that happening right now. But I think that if you take that, I think things go back to their Aboriginal state. And the reality is, is that we are going to have a reckoning. We're having it now. And the demographics are changing. And people can decide they're going to hang on. You know, those trustees of Davidson are like, we want to keep this old way. They're not going to win. And it, it's stupid. So we can either decide that we're going to make ourselves extinct. You know, white cisgender men can either decide they're going to make themselves extinct. Or they can decide to figure out that it's better for all of us if we figure out how to make this work. Um, and we, as those who are trying to change that dynamic, it does not help us, I think. I won't say it doesn't help us because we need, we need all things. We need everybody in this fight. The, the, the ground that I've chosen to stake is to try, even if it's painful, to say to people, this is how we all benefit. And I might have to beat you over here with a stick to make you understand it, but this is how we all benefit. I'm not trying to take anything from you, but the reality is, as you know, we, we um, I've stood on stages and said, diversity and inclusion is not a zero sum game. At the onset, yes, it is. Because if somebody owns 95% of the stuff, as they say, you know, the cargo, as they say in um, Guns, Jones, and Steel, if yes, you got 95% of cargo. cargo and I got umbrellas. Right, exactly. If I got 5% of the cargo, you got to give up part of that 95%. My job is to tell you why doing that is beneficial to you. And it is not an easy argument to make. It is not one you want to hear. It's not one anybody wants to hear. But the reality is, is what, what I'm not saying, the, the sort of Damocles that's kind of hanging over there or the unsaid is, if you don't agree to this, you're going to lose eventually anyway. Because we coming. The world is changing. And we can do this easy or we can do this hard. But th yeah. that, that is what is different now. That is what is different, I think, globally that has not existed before. Technology has knocked down barriers in ways that did not exist before. Um, you know, people of color demographically are becoming the majority. Um, there's a lot that's changed. So the, 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 the faction in the world that wants to hold on to this old thing and do it, make America great again, it ain't going back to that. It's never going back to that. So we have to decide. Yeah. And what I'm afraid of, what I'm afraid of, but I am cognizant of, is it's going to be really ugly in the meantime. We're, not, mm -hmm. we're just getting to the ugly part. Yeah. Because nobody wants to give up privilege and power. And I yeah. think it was Frederick Douglass that said, power is never, basically power is never giving willing, I don't have the quote right, right, but the quote exactly right, but basically nobody gives up power and privilege willingly. It is, it has to be taken. And that's where we are. And so I, it's going to be ugly. And I, I, I wish different, but I'm, I'm realistic. I don't think it's going to, I don't think it can go any other way. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Janet. What are the questions we have? We're getting a I'm at 9.34, and I want to kind of start wrapping up, KD. But I'm I pretty sure more, there's some dying questions. I can do this for a minute. <laughs> uh, you got just some more, Uncle Nears? <laughs> so, so what do we got? Um, KD, let's, um, if there's anybody who's been holding tight, who has some dying questions, you know, I mean, we talked about a few things. I mean, one of the things that I know I've been thinking about is the whole concept, um, Janet, of, let me just go ahead and interject this question because I think this is a win-win for everyone because that was the theme of what you just said. Um, you you kind of talked about this when we had our conversation of how a person 
can leverage their uniqueness mm -hmm. to talk about these very, very difficult topics. Because the topics are very, very difficult, right? But what, yeah. share with us, um, Janet, how can we leverage our uniqueness to talk about these, 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 these DEI topics in a way that holds organizations, corporations, institutions responsible? I know you alluded to it because I heard in some of the things you say, but let's speak directly to that if you don't mind. First of all, you have to know what your unique property is. You know, where I, I was talking to Anissa about, you know, like I said to Anissa, I'm glad you blew whoever that white man up was. You, you, you got to him at one point. You did that in your sphere. Um, you know, I whisper in CEO's ears. I, I, I'm a communicator. I go around and like mess with communications things. That's what I do. Um, others of us, you know, Dana is on the transportation board. She does that. Karen's in the um, nonprofit space. Michelle is in the business space. We all do this in our unique spaces. It is all about saying single-mindedly, what am I solving for? I think, that is a, that, I think that's a pivotal question. I'm solving for racism. I'm solving for Black people. I'm not solving for women. I'm not solving for Latinos. I'm solving for black people. So knowing that and being single-minded about that, no matter what situation I get into, one thing we talk about in our life is about habituation. You know, we we have a we have solutions for corporate America that say you can mitigate bias by forming new habits. It's the difference between, you know, behavioral psychology. I don't care what you think, just change your habits and eventually your brain, free your mind and your ass will follow. But basically change your habits and your mind will follow. But um, so I believe that if you are solving every day for racism, specifically the space you're in, if you're Latino, you're solving for that. If you, you know, if you're a white woman, you're solving for that. Whatever you're solving for, if it's if it becomes your habit, whatever space you're in, whatever your unique superpower is, you pivot it to solving for that. So I am a communicator. I'm a writer. I'm a speaker. I'm a marketing person. I'm not going to take a job being a neurosurgeon because I, I don't know how to do that. You know, I'm not going to do what Anissa does. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do what Dana does. I'm not going to do what Karen does. But in my space, I'm going to blow that up every day. Mm -hmm. If somebody says something stupid and it, 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 it fringes, it, it impinges on race, I'm there. Prime example, NLI probably is going to be think, think twice again about putting me on a webinar. The first <laughs> webinar they put me on was about gender stuff. And I said to them, y'all don't want to put me on that because I don't really care about women's issues. I don't do that. Like, no, 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 no. And I know they wanted, they wanted to try out the TED speaker. They wanted to, they wanted to put the black person there. Fine. I was on the thing with a woman who's a scientist. She's a professor. She's brilliant. Wonderful. In the call going up, planning for it, you know, we got into the discussion about some, some science. And she said that she was arguing about a study that said that quite, that despite what common knowledge was, Black women had more um, ability to speak up in the corporate space because we were expected to be a little bit louder. And I said to her, look, you know what? I haven't seen your science, 
But let me tell you about tell you what I know. If we step into that space, we get slapped down. And this is just said it. She's proof of what happens. I said, so I don't really think we ought to do that. And she went, she argued with me. She went, okay, you know what? Never mind. Don't say it. She gets on the call. And the deal was we were supposed to each come off mute to have our conversation. And she started down it. And I know the minute she saw me come off mute, she was like, all hell. And I went at her. And I'm like, well, I don't know what your science says, but let me tell you what the lived experience is. And thank goodness the chat blew up because all the black women on that call was like, get her, get her, get her. Tell her this, tell her this. And so I can't solve in a NISA space, but thank God a NISA's there doing it. But in that space, what I knew was what my superpower was. So to your questions, we have to decide this is what we're solving for. And we can't do it every day because we're tired. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't, I just don't, I just don't get tired. I mean, I don't really sleep. And so, you know, and, and it's just, it, it pushing back against this energizes me. But I had my moment when it didn't. You know, and I have days when it's just like, I just can't deal with this crap today. And I just shut down and I don't deal with anything. But I know if I get recharged, the good thing is, is that when I come back, somebody be doing something stupid that I can go take care of. But yeah, it's it's just, we have to do this every day. It is sad. It's not fair. But this is an end at this point. I remember Davidson saying one day, I will decide that the Black Student Coalition is successful when we don't need it anymore. When my daughter came there, I thought, y'all done trashed the house. You know, y'all are not doing things the way I would have done it when we were there. You don't understand the legacy we left you, blah, 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 blah. But if you could tell me that we don't, need this anymore, then I would have done my job. But the reality is, is Davidson still needed a Black Student Coalition. It was a different Black Student Coalition than the Black Student Coalition that several of us saw, but they still needed it. And I would love it if I could yell, scream, bitch, argue my way out of a job. But it will not happen in my lifetime. It will not happen in my children's lifetime. We have to recognize that we live in a country that was built on racism. We live in a country that is the leader worldwide, globally, because of racism. The reason the United States is what it is, is because we enslaved people to build it. If we think that a few woke people and a few mad black folks gonna change that overnight, it's not. I mean, you would have to go blow this stuff up with a nuclear bomb and start all over again. And nobody wants to do that. So what we have to accept is this is what we're dealing with. And, 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 this, and this is systemic. It is not individual. It is not interpersonal. It is systemic. It is baked into the very structure of this country. There is nothing more American than racism, wow. specifically black, white racism. Wow. That's the most American thing there is. Wow. Katie, Katie, what two questions? What let's let's wrap it up with one question, maybe two. Janet, OMG, I parallel universe. I'm in a whole different place right now. I'm gonna need some <laughs> Uncle Nearest to get me through because my mind my, just my exploded. Kid's slow. She's getting down here with mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 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 Katie, what do you got from the chat? Is is anyone not spoken that really wanted to spoke? Do we miss anybody? I want to make sure that they got a chance to speak and ask their question. 
and you can talk to me after this. I'm, I do this all day. Yeah, that's a good point. Let's 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 do. Where, where can they find you? What's the best way for them to reach you? I, you know what? My kids are probably watching this right now and mad at me because my youngest will probably what? You don't know your Twitter handle? I don't. <laughs> I'm not in the Twitterverse where I should be. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm, 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 I'm corporate that way. I will respond to you. You can find me on my Instagram. That's pictures. I don't take pictures. They don't, they don't have pictures of what I do. You know, well, so, that's, a, that's a good point. If we get somebody to share Janet's um Somebody got it. That's too funny. Let me go have, ahead, uh, Katie. Yeah, Janet, you mentioned something. I mean, there, I just picked off a couple of quotes from you, and one of them I thought was just absolutely phenomenal. You said something about you check off more boxes. Mm -hmm. And um, when you were talking about being a speechwriter and everything else, and the reason why you deserved really to be in that space was because you were checking off more boxes. Talk to us just for a minute about how important it is for those of us that are checking off a lot of boxes to really embrace that and to really feel empowered by that and to not be shy about leading with that. I mean, if you're working for a company that does not want to hear who you are, you probably need to be someplace else. Mm -hmm. I will say once again, most companies are not stupid enough to say that they don't care mm -hmm. about these diverse perspectives. What they don't know is how to tap into them. Mm -hmm. they, don't, they don't know how to ask people to present them. Um, so you have, an, you have an interesting dilemma here. Um, here's a great example. I, I, consulted with a company, they are a major pharmaceutical company. And they asked me to come talk to their African-American BRG. And so I came in and the first question I said to them was, and this particular company makes HIV drugs. Now, I don't know diddly in general about pharmaceuticals, but of course, in preparation for this, because I was doing a four hour workshop, I had to do my homework. What I discovered was the demographic that is most affected by HIV is heterosexual black women, you know, because there's so many brothers on the DL. And um, that's that's who's dying from this. So when I went to this meeting, I said to him, I said, we were down, we were down in Orlando, everybody had been partying, having a great time. And so the first thing they had to deal with me was first thing in the morning, I was like, so why do y'all think this company is paying for you all to be here? Mm -hmm. I said, it's not because they like you. Oh, you thought it's because they liked you? No, they, you are a business resource group. They're asking you to be a resource. My question to you is, what problem are you solving for with your blackness? Mm -hmm. What is it that you can do that nobody else can do? You know, I'm getting the blank stares. And it's like, okay, I don't know much about your business, but I do know this. This is a demographic that's dying of HIV. You make what? HIV drugs. You need to be every day telling this company how much money they can make by letting you go out there and talk to black communities or make solutions for black customers because that is their biggest demographic. So I think what has to happen is we have to figure out, I'll say again, we got to tag into what, the, what, what our organizations, what our universities, what our groups have already said they care about. Now, if you're in a, a space where nobody has said they give a crap about diversity, you don't have an edge. Yeah, wrong it's about it's about contextual advantage. You have a contextual advantage in a space 
where they have said they care or they need or they want diversity. All you got to do is call them on what they've already said. That's your wedge in. That's your open door. Because you can stand here on the outside all day. If you're in an organization that doesn't care about this, all you're doing is saying, see me, see me, see me, see me, see me, care. And everybody told you, don't say you, don't say you, don't say you don't care. You can't win that argument. You can only argue in a place where somebody has said, we do care. And you call them on it every day. You do what I did at Davidson where you say, you do care, here's how you fix it. You give them solutions. And you make, it, you make, you make sure they understand how your blackness, your womanhood, your... Your, your whatever it is that you bring, your ability, whatever your, your unique, diverse perspective is, you show these people how that furthers their advantage. Mm -hmm. And it, it's sideways as hell. But we've been doing it since we got here. Awesome. Thank awesome. You. So awesome. Thank you, Janet. You, you, Janet knows how to stay. I thought I was going to keep her on topic. She's keeping me on topic. Thank you, Janet. <laughs> <laughs> All of the Jews eventually came out. One last question. I'm going to play a little music and get us out of here. Thank you all for um, being here tonight. I just want to say um, we've had an awesome discussion. I've had a great privilege of chatting with Janet. We're going to put in the chat um, where you guys can find Janet. So I saw um, Michelle in there dropping it. Michelle is the queen of dropping that stuff. I saw her. Oh, oh it. Michelle <laughs> dropped it already. Thank you, Michelle. Yeah, and, so, and her LinkedIn is in there too. Great. Even better. So, Katie, any last questions? Anything to close us out? Don't have any last questions. I would just like to say thank you so much to Janet. We really appreciate thank you being you. here. We really do. Thank you both. I love this work you're doing. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. All right. Well, thank you all. And I know we got a few guests on tonight that I'm, I'm looking to spotlight. A buddy of mine asked me recently, he said, can you get somebody who do some cooking? So I got a friend of a 